Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel. And today I'm talking to Dr. Mauro Porto, who is the author of the book, Mirrors of Whiteness, Media, Middle-Class Resentment, and the Rise of the Far Right in Brazil, published by the University of Pittsburgh Press. Dr. Porto, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about your book. And so just to jump in with the first question, so you're the author of the book, Media, Power, and Democratization in Brazil, TV Globo, and the Dilemmas of Political Accountability. And so this book, Mirrors of Whiteness, seems to continue your examination of the relationship between politics and power in Brazilian media. So can you tell us about yourself and how you came to write the book, Mirrors of Whiteness? Sure. Well, I was born and raised in Brasilia, Brazil's capital. Um, I got to the University of Brasilia and decided to get a master's uh, in political science. And since then, I have been working in the field of political communication. And, um, and that book that you mentioned is my examination of the role of TV Globo, the main media group in Brazil, in the first two decades of Brazil's democracy. So the period is from 85 to 2006. And that book was quite optimistic in terms of the changes in the media system and changes in the political system. But of course, for this new book, I had to face this huge political earthquake that we experienced in Brazil, which was the rise of the far right which culminated with the 2018 election of uh, Jair Bolsonaro. So I, that led me really to pause and rethink uh, not only my own scholarship, but my own trajectory as, uh, as I tell in the book, as a white middle-class man. Uh, so, and I had to reorient a lot of my thinking and a lot of my scholarship to to cope and try to give some insight into the nature of this conservative rebellion. So there are continuities, but also significant changes between the two books. Great. Thank you for that answer. So that takes us to, I guess, the argument of the book, uh, Mirrors of Whiteness. And so the book makes several arguments, but one of the arguments is that um, is that you, you have this term, Mirrors of Whiteness, and I'm going to quote you because you argue that, quote, the Brazilian media offers their audiences mirrors of whiteness or spheres of representations that allow white people to legitimate their power while softening or hiding the wretchedness of the inequalities and injustices such power generates. And so I quoted you, that was on page 11. And so I wondered, um, how did you come to this argument and what interventions did you hope to make with it? Yeah, I hope that this concept of mirrors of whiteness um, can become a significant contribution to anyone interested in thinking about the intersection of media, between media representations, race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, and class. Uh, I'm not obviously the first one to think um, to take the mirror analogy to try to understand those intersections. So in this book, I take this analogy of the mirror as something that illuminates um, how those intersections take place. Uh, but obviously, I'm not the only one to rely on that analogy. So feminists have long used the, the mirror analogy to talk about uh the power of representation. And so, for example, in the writings of Virginia Woolf, uh, she uses the mirror as an analogy about the constraining authority of patriarchy that demands conformity to the society's rules, right? James Baldwin writes about 
how the sight of black bodies works for white Americans as the most disagreeable mirror, since they evoke this appalling, oppressive, and bloody history that whites would rather not be reminded of. So I take, I, I draw on critical gender and race uh, studies to highlight the way in which media representations can be interpreted as a kind of mirror that work that have that has important ideological effects. And what I mean by mirrors of whiteness is this tendency of the mainstream media in Brazil, which is what I analyze in this book, of representing blackness and whiteness in ways that legitimate inequality. Uh, and I think this concept is also useful because it points to the fact that even when the, the number of subaltern groups, characters, increase in media representations, the power of whiteness can be strengthened rather than weakened, right? So the matter is not just how much more representation we have of subaltern groups, but how what's the ideological framework within which these groups are framed? And I argue that uh, it's that scholars have to, to be very sensitive to the way in which inequalities are shaped, uh, are framed from this viewpoint, uh, from the ideological standpoint of whiteness. So, and, and I hope the concept can be productive to uncover and investigate th this kind of ideological effect. Yeah, thank you. The, the concept is, uh, is, is great in that it ties the book together and it's a very, I think, expansive and generative concept for us to think about the media um, in Brazil, the mainstream media and its representations. And so in the book, um, you also make reference to the Afro-Brazilian writer Carolina Maria de Jesus. And so you dedicate the book to her as well as other people. And then you begin each section in the first three chapters with quotes from the writing of Catalina Maria de Jesus. And so Catalina was a very incisive observer of Brazilian life and inequality. And so I wondered, why did you pair her work with your own arguments? And what's the relationship between her and, and your material? Yes. Um, yeah, I draw extensively on... Carolina's diaries to think about the topics I'm interested in the book, about the intersection between race, uh, gender, class. And um, I found her work profoundly insightful, right? Because when reading her diaries of this poor, impoverished um, black woman living in a favela in a shanty town in Sao Paulo, um, she, in those diaries, she introduced several topics and questions that would be taken by scholars and expanded only much later on. Um, and the intersection of blackness and um, class inequality uh, and gender. So I think she played, also played a major role in breaking the patterns of representation that historically have characterized Brazilian media and culture, right? What I call the mirrors of whiteness. Uh, through uh, her assertive positioning as a writer, despite her social subaltern social condition, she contributed to highlight the intersection between blackness, poverty, and injustice in a country that tended to celebrate racial democracy, to deny the importance of racial injustice and discrimination. Uh, so she really contributed to challenge traditional ways of thinking about race, gender, and class in Brazil. And so I often quote her because a lot of what I'm discussing in the book, she anticipated uh, in her diaries. Uh, and also because I think her story illustrates the power of the mirrors of whiteness, right? Her tragic fate reveals how strong gender, racial, and class hierarchies are in Brazil, right? Her fame was short-lived um, after the publication of her first diary, 
Uh, she didn't attract a large readership. She was forced to move back to the favela and to scavenge again to provide for her children. Uh, and as Robert Levine uh, argued, her fate was a result exactly of her self-assured positioning, the ways that she com confronted prevailing social norms. And basically because she was a black woman who expressed herself assertively, strongly, uh, and in a way that broke common assumptions about the subalternity of black women in Brazil. So uh, I was really inspired by her work and I don't take her to uh, represent the complexity of blackness in Brazil and of, or black cultural production. But I do take her as someone who was very um, original in the way that she anticipated a lot of key topics that the black movement would recover later on, that black intellectuals would expand later on. So her work was very inspirational. Yeah, I really like those um, quotes that you include with her from her work in your in your book because it made me rethink about her and think about her in different ways. And I and I liked how you said that it expands her work to think about how she was so forward thinking and anticipating what many of us are are now also thinking about. And so it's I'm also happy that she's I think experiencing somewhat of a of a renaissance right now as well in in Brazil. So I think that's great. And your book um, really, you know, brings that to the fore. And so in the book, you focus squarely on the middle class in Brazil. And so that begs the question, um, who are the middle class? And, you know, how do you understand the relationship between whiteness and middle class status in Brazil? Yes. The reason I focus the book on the middle class is because it was the protagonist of the conservative movement that... Uh, took place in Brazil between roughly 2013 and 2018. It was the white middle class that took to the streets to demand the impeachment of President Dilma Rousseff in 2015 and 16. The impeachment took place through a parliamentarian coup in 2016. And it was the white middle class that was the basis, not the, not the only social group, but this, the social basis of the of the Bolsonaro re-election, uh, election, first election in 2018. So, but then, on the other hand, you know, the notion of social class is quite ambiguous. There is a contro considerable controversy in the social science and the humanities on how to define the middle class and how to identify its boundaries. Um, but I make an effort in the book to clarify these issues because there is there are widespread problems and also very problematic assumptions in public and academic debates about the middle class. So, for example, um, class positions are often defined in terms of income stratification instead of structural positions, right? So in my book, I tend to define the middle class uh, as the structural position of individuals that uh, have traditional liberal and technical professions like lawyers, engineers, architects, doctors, civil servants, uh, small business owners, managers, teachers, college professors. So the, the traditional um, group of professions that have been known to be the traditional middle class. But I but also argue in the book that we have to go on beyond the Marxism emphasis on structural position. Uh, and I argue that to understand the middle class, we have to work with at least two other paradigms. So the first one is Weberian Max Weber, the famous sociology frameworks that um, evolved uh, by framing this new concept of status groups in opposition to social class. The key point here is that if you look at the subjectivity of white Brazilians, uh, you see how the middle class has emerged as a status group, a status group that expects privileged access to institutions and resources, right? Um, and I argue in particular that two 
what I call, using Weber, social closure mechanisms that have been particularly important in Brazil too, in the history of the middle class, is access to higher education um, and the availability of cheap labor, mostly by black and brown women, to work as domestic workers, right? So I, I argue that both the college diploma and the presence of a domestic worker became major markers of middle class identity in Brazil. So understanding the middle class as a status group is, in, is important. But uh, the second tradition that I bring to understand the middle class, is, middle class in Brazil is the field of critical whiteness studies. So in the book, I developed this argument that it's impossible to separate whiteness and middle-class identity in the Brazilian case, right? The middle-class in Brazil evolved history, historically by relying on social closure mechanisms that from the start were racialized, that worked to um, exclude uh, poor and black Brazilians from access to uh, the college diploma or access to um, advantages, social positions, right? So, in other words, I, I deploy this concept of the white middle class to highlight the interconnection between race and class in the Brazilian case. Yeah, that's a great, um, a great explanation of the Brazilian middle class. And in talking about the availability of cheap and black and brown labor, that I think brings me to the next question, which is to ask you about um, some context before we go into one of your case studies. And so um, the context is about domestic workers or maids in Brazil. And so many times in my classes, when I teach about domestic work or maids in Brazil, um, one thing I always have to tell my students is how ubiquitous they are in Brazil, because someone who is accustomed to life in the United States may not understand that um, in Brazil, practically every middle-class household has a maid, which is what you also just explained as a feature of middle-class life. And so you use the telenovela um, called Sparkling Girls in English or Cheias de Charme in Portuguese um, as an example of a mirror of whiteness. And this telenovela features three domestic workers or maids um, as its protagonist. Um, but before we talk about the telenovela, I wondered if you could talk about the context of domestic work in Brazil and these issues kind of around like payment and labor and getting your workers card signed. Sure. Yeah, that's for me is a absolutely central topic to understand contemporary and uh, Brazil, but more broadly Brazilian society. Um, and as you point in your question, paid domestic work is particularly ubiquitous in Brazil. Right? Brazil has by far the largest population of domestic workers in the world. Um, it's estimated that the, there are more than 6 million women employed as maids in households. And that massive number of women working as domestic workers uh, points to the fact that there are common presence not only in the upper classes, but also they are very common in the households of middle-class Brazilians. So it's very hard for, a, for an outsider to understand both how ubiquitous domestic workers are in Brazilian society, but more importantly, how they are particularly um, useful to understand uh, Brazil's deep racial class and gender inequalities. So I think uh, if you, if I would need to pick an institution that has a significant role in shaping those inequalities in Brazil, I would say that domestic, the presence um, of such a number of women in the households of white middle-class Brazilians is particularly structuring of those inequalities, right? So, um, so that again, I'm not the first one to 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 point to this. Several scholars have argued uh, that the middle class has this pervasive reliance on maids in a way that this constitutes broader social divisions. Uh, Patricia Pinho and Elizabeth Silva have a very good article where they explain. And they argue that domestic worker 
domestic work is the sphere where uh, different patterns of subordination intersect, right? And therefore, it plays a central role in the both in the creation and reproduction of systems of inequality, right? So I, I think to understand um, this rise of the far right, um, we have to understand changes in uh, that happen in the sphere of paid domestic work in Brazil and the reaction of the white middle class to those changes. Thank you. That context is so important to then understand the telenovela Sparkling Girls. And so as you've as you've explained the centrality of um, maids or domestic workers and understanding Brazilian life and culture and also inequality, um, you look at the telenovela Sparkling Girls, which has domestic workers as their protagonists. And the telenovela is from 2012. And so I wondered if you could talk about that telenovela and um, give us an example about how it provides a mirror of whiteness um, or demonstrates your your larger point that you make in the book. Yes. Uh, so in fact, this book has two main case studies uh, in terms of identifying the mirrors of whiteness. There's one chapter about this telenovela, Shears de Charme, and there's another chapter about news coverage of affirmative action. Um, so why I looked at this telenovela, it was kind of a strong test to my concept because the telenovela was often celebrated um, for including subaltern groups as protagonists, right? So as you point, this telenovela tells the story of three domestic workers who achieved this meteoric success and significant social ascension after launching a singing group, right? Um, the uh, Impregetis. So the series has often been portrayed as a positive representation because of the inclusion of so-called emerging social groups, including uh, domestic workers, right? So it's important to understand the context here that in the first de decade of the 2000s, during, especially during Lula's two terms in the presidency, Brazil experienced a significant process of social inclusion, with declining levels of poverty and inequality. So, for example, between 2003 and 11, almost 9 million households, uh, representing more than 30 million people, crossed the poverty line, right? So that there was a significant improvement in the living standards of Brazil's poorest. And because the telenovela included maids as protagonists, uh, some scholars argued that it, it was an attempt of TV Global to incorporate uh, these new social perspectives. Uh, and I argue in the book that those interpretations are quite misleading because they fail to look, uh, to analyze the extent to which the telenovela representations reflected the mirrors of whiteness. So in other words, uh, how the issue of domestic work was framed from the perspective of the white middle class. Uh, and it, and in, often in ways that legitimated broader social, gender, and class inequalities. Uh, and I develop a textual analysis of, uh, of this telenovela to point to the many ways in which they circulated this mirrors of whiteness, right? So, for example, in the telenovela, you have this very problematic association between blackness and manual labor. Uh, the telenovela often frames domestic workers, especially the dark-skinned ones, as individuals that are naturally positioned to take care of manual work. They present manual work as their vocation in a way that's never done for the white uh, domestic workers in the plot. And, and Chirtishami also uh, reinforces the association between whiteness and generosity by promoting this trope of the benevolent and friendly patroa. So all these patterns of representation that Telenovela, I argue, allow the middle class to justify their reliance on the cheap labor of domestic servant, servants while projecting 
an image of themselves as generous individuals, right? Not only you, you, you justify inequality, but you legitimate it uh, by framing it in terms of white generosity. And very importantly, I argue that instead of incorporating emerging social groups, the role of Shia Tishami was actually to disseminate stigmatizing representations about them, right? So the telenovela, for example, ridicules the ways in which the previously poor, including domestic workers, started to occupy social spaces and practices like consumption that the white middle class used to monopolize, right? And by doing so, the telenovela contributed to further disseminate anxiety and resentment in the middle class. Uh, so one of the cases, uh, the episodes I look is about the growing presence of low-income Brazilians, um, people of color, and domestic workers in airports. So in Brazil at the time, there was all this rhetoric about how airports now look like bus stations, right? Exactly because um, the formerly poor and mostly black and brown Brazilians were starting to occupy social spaces and practices that used to be monopolized by the white middle class. So, and I hope, you know, the, the concept of mirrors of whiteness is used useful to understand that instead of celebrating the ascension of these groups, Shir Jisham, in fact, contributed to disseminate a form of resentment that played a significant role in the rise of this new conservative movement. Yeah, and so that takes me to the, to the next question, which is about um, this question of a status panic, which you talk about in the book, among the middle class in Brazil. And um, what you just talked about, too, the whole that issue with airports, um, I remember when I was in Brazil, too, I went to, the, to a mall with a group of activists, and um, they were Afro-Brazilian activists, and one of them kind of said to me offhand, like, oh, they don't want us here, they don't want us here in the mall. Um, and so you, you talk about how, as, as you just said, um, these spaces of privilege are now being occupied by, um, by people, like by black and brown and poor people. Um, and so in the, in 2013, you talk about these protests and I was also there during the, the protests in Sao Paulo. And I remember going out into the street during some of the protests. And I remember this being a very pivotal moment in civil society. And so in the book, you link these protests to middle classes and how they fear that they're losing a monopoly over certain spaces. Um, and so how, how are these, uh, were these protests linked to this status panic in Brazil? Yes, uh, so my book highlights this concept of status panic uh, that comes from sociologist C. Wright Mills. So according to him, status panic is a type of anxiety that emerges when the historical basis of prestige of the middle class become infirm, right? So when the traditional ways uh, of middle-class formation as a status group uh, become eroded for some reason, right? So what, in my book, I argued that the decline in poverty and inequality levels in the early 2000s contributed to generate a significant status panic among middle-class Brazilians, right? So when there is a relative improvement in the living standards of the poorest Brazilians, they started to occupy um, spaces and practices that used to be monopolized by the white middle class. So, uh, and they started, for example, to engage in consumption practices that uh, that used to be the monopoly of middle and upper class Brazilians. So, uh, in the specific, you mentioned your experience in a shopping center. So it's very interesting to note that in the end of 2013, beginning of 2014, we had the phenomenon of the Holezinhos in Brazil, which basically means uh, little straw, um, how would you translate, little uh, uh, walks by mostly 
low-income black and brown youth in shopping centers. So what happened that period is that young people from the poor uh, neighborhoods and the large metropolitan cities started using the internet and social media to organize gatherings in the mecca of middle-class consumerism, right? The, the shopping centers. And the backlash they faced was impressive by the mainstream media, by the private apparatus of the shopping centers and by police forces who framed the presence of these groups of young folks and folks in, in shopping centers uh, as inappropriate, right? Um, so what you see in Brazil is that, you know, uh, a lot of the politics of the geography of race, right? The way in which uh, black and brown Brazilians started to enter practices and spaces that used to be monopolized by the white middle class. Uh, and that created, that contributed to create this status panic, right? The middle class really saw it losing its monopoly over access to spaces and practices that used to be key markers of middle-class identity. Uh, and um, yeah, and, the, and I argue in the book that the telenovela contributed to that, to mock the aspirations of social mobility of domestic workers, to a point that they were now consuming products and uh, engaging in activities that to not belong to domestic workers, right? And there is an episode in recent Brazilian history which did, with that the far right, the Minister of Finances of the far right government of Bolsonaro, uh, Paulo Guedes, in an interview praised the devaluation of the real, the Brazilian currency in relation to the dollar, because according to him, even the maids, and I quote, right? Even the maids were going to Disneyland, right? So that outrage that a domestic worker can have disposable income to travel abroad, right? This is seen as completely unacceptable. And that for me, it's, <clears throat> excuse me, a key part of this status panic that started to emerge in that period. So I wanted to turn to your other, um, your other case study, which you mentioned earlier, the Veja magazine. And so one of the spaces uh, that the middle class were fearing their loss of dominance was the university. And so you you just talked about the sparkling girls and the telenovela and um, the status panic. Um, but the, the other example that you go into great detail is with Beja magazine and how it framed debates about affirmative action um, or quotas in Brazil. And so how did uh, Veja magazine privilege uh, a white middle class perspective and its coverage over these uh, over these policies? Yeah, thank you for the question. I think one of the contributions, I hope, of the book is that it combines the analysis of television fiction by discussing a telenovela, a melodramatic TV series with news coverage, right? News and, and the role of journalism. So I decided to focus on news coverage of affirmative action in higher education uh, by the magazine Veja, which is Brazil's leading print media outlet, uh, in a period of seven years, from 2006 to 2002, uh, to, from 2006 to 2012. That's the, a key period that marks, you know, this expansion of affirmative action in public universities, and that culminates with a constitutional ruling in 2012 that uh, declared those initiatives constitutional and ended the legal controversies surrounding affirmative action. So, and what I, by looking at the seven-year period, what I found is, is that Veja's overwhelmingly white staff uh, consistently denied the existence of racial inequality and racial discrimination in Brazil. That was a key aspect of that coverage. And more importantly, Veja contributed to build that sense of status panic in the middle class by insisting that reparatory policies such as affirmative action would create an artificial process of racialization 
right, that was poised, according to the magazine, to generate conflict, violence, and even totalitarian political tendencies, right? So uh, racial quotas for college admission were linked to historical process like Nazism in Germany or apartheid in South Africa or uh, Jim Crow laws in the South, in the U.S. So there was this consistent coverage, alarming coverage, spreading this panic about the consequences that affirmative action would have in Brazilian society. So, and such coverage, you know, they did that exactly because the magazine adopted whiteness as an ideological perspective. Uh, So the whole debate about the consequences and the value of reparatory policies in Brazil was framed from the perspective of middle-class subjects, the main readership uh, of vision. Um, so, yeah, I think that it's very revealing the way in which Brazilian journalism contributed to create a status panic around a policy that would end up being quite successful in incorporating black, brown, and poor Brazilians uh, into higher education, right? So that, uh, but that po- that policy change had also a significant role in building this conservative movement. There was a lot of resentment about um, the ways in which the college diploma ended being this marker of middle-class identity, right? Or, uh, so, yeah, I think the the effort there was to show the role of journalism in framing affirmative action in such a way that contributed to disseminate resentment in the middle class. Yeah, and so I wanted to ask you, I guess, how you, how you see these mirrors of whiteness being maintained in the mainstream media. And so I was reading, when I was reading your book, it took me back to my experiences interviewing black media producers, and many of them in Brazil, and many of them talked about how when they worked in mainstream media, they couldn't integrate their ideas to include more Afro-Brazilians. So many of them, you know, got jobs in, in say, mainstream uh, magazines and whatnot, and wanted, had the idea that they wanted to add more, say, Afro-Brazilian images or whatever have you, and they just would constantly run up against these um, barriers where they couldn't, they couldn't implement their ideas. And so I wondered um, from you how, how you see these mirrors of whiteness being main, maintained in mainstream media, and do you see them beginning to disintegrate at all, or do you see any changes underway uh, in, in the mainstream media? Sure. Yeah, I think what you're pointing to here is also another research agenda, right? We need to study if and how the traditional mirrors of whiteness are being challenged in Brazil, uh, in contemporary Brazil. And your book presents data about the predominance of white cultural producers in the mainstream media, including TV and film, right? Um, In my book, I also mention how that uh, dominance is manifested in journalism, right? All colonists that wrote about affirmative action in a seven-year period in Vesha were white. There was a single uh, colonist of color, and that reflects a broader national pattern in Brazil. Some studies show that more than 90% of colonists in Brazilian newspapers are white. Uh, the uh, another study from 2021 about the top editorial positions in news organizations from Brazil and four other countries um, showed this predominance of white editors in the Brazilian news media. So, this, for example, despite the fact that a third of Brazilian journalists self-identify as non-white, as black or moreno, the study did not find a single non-white top editor in Brazilian news organizations. Right, so the pattern here is absolutely clear. Right, the whiteness of the mainstream media is staggering. Uh, but of course, in opposition to that, you have the rise of a new generation of black activists and cultural producers that have not been sitting quietly, what witnessing 
this whiteness of the media, right? So uh, particularly there is a new generation, there's a new black women's movement that culminated with a national march to the Capitol in 2015. So you have uh, this younger generation of black activists that have used the internet and other forms of culture and media production to challenge what I call the mirrors of whiteness, right? And we have several contemporary examples that you examine in your book. Uh, I like to tell my students about the case of a TV series called The Sexiest Negers from 2014, uh, Sex and the Black Women, that had four black women as protagonists that portrayed them uh, in uh, very traditional um, stigmatizing ways, hypersexualized uh, and commodified black women. And at that time in 2014, you have a huge number of black women take to the internet and spreading the hashtag sexiest niggas only represent. The series does not represent me. And they created enough. Uh, uh, we don't need to remember, uh, it's also important to remember that the TV series was written and produced by a white man, right? So, and that movement was quite successful because TV Global did not renew the series for a second series. And you, you can see that in several other moments. In 2018, TV Global released the telenovela O Segundo Sol that was supposed to be based in Bahia, a state where about 80% of the population self-identify as black or brown, and there were very few black characters. And again, right, activists took to their web and to the other spaces to protest this blatant whiteness of Tibirubo. So there is more and more resistance, but I don't think I'm not op optimistic about any possible changes in the mainstream media. We had recently the departure from TV Global of maybe Brazil's most famous black actor, Lazaro Ramos, left Global after decades. And in the newspaper interviews, he said he was leaving Global because he was tired of begging for a space, right? So it's very revealing about the whiteness uh, of TV Global. And he went on to produce uh, a powerful movie like Medida Provisoria, right, that puts blackness and racial injustice at the core of the Brazilian debate. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think uh, the change is coming from this new generation of activists that are really challenging the mirrors of whiteness. They are using the internet and YouTube, as you point in your book, and other spheres to challenge the mirrors of whiteness. Um, and, 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 and in that way, they have been very effective in changing the terms of the racial debate in Brazil. Wow, that is fascinating about Lázaro Ramos uh, leaving uh, TV Global. So that's a big, big shift, as you say. Um, and so I wondered, um, I guess my last question about the book is if you could tell us a little bit about the research process for the study. And I, I can only imagine the amount of, of work that it took to go through all this material because you undertook a content analysis of the telenovela, as you uh, mentioned, and then with Veja magazine, you also uh, did an analysis of that uh, magazine. And so the telenovela had 143 episodes, and Veja magazine is a weekly periodical that you tracked, as you said, from a seven-year period from 2006 to 2012. So it just sounds like a lot of material and in the book, you methodically take us through these different episodes and issues and dialogues. And so I wondered um, how you chose the telenovela and magazine and, and how you organized the research for the book. Yeah, I think uh, that also represents a shift in my research agenda. I have been, over the years, doing a lot of quantitative content analysis of news and a little bit of textual analysis, of some textual analysis of telenovelas, but it became clear to me that you needed to go more in depth to understand the ideological nature of media text, right? That, you know, broad quantitative patterns would not be enough. And that was my interest of showing that 
that key point that I argue in the book that even when you have the rise in the number of subaltern groups and media texts, the dominant hegemonic ideology can be strengthened rather than weakened. So that's very important. That leads us to think more critically about the, how to go about analyzing media representations. And I understood from the start that only a detailed textual, qualitative textual analysis would allow me to do that. So I sat for some time to watch, as you mentioned, the 143 episodes of, of the telenovela, which enabled me to, you know, to understand uh, the role uh, of a social identity that's often invi invisible, right? It's not problematized, it's not discussed, which is whiteness. Uh, so, and I think it's only that detailed qualitative textuals that enable you to, to uncover those, the ideological na nature of media texts. And the same thing with the Veja, right? I checked their digital archive, but I also made sure to go uh, to a library and read the magazine to see if, uh, if, if ev everything relevant about affirmative action had been included in the sample. And for me, it was very interesting to go back and read the news stories with an eye on the subjective position, both of the writer, right, of the journalist, but also of the implicit audience. And it's very interesting how the use of pronouns appear in our new news coverage, right? We, uh, as the implied white middle-class um, uh, subject, and the same thing of addressing the audience clearly uh, as uh, a white middle-class subject. So Veja had that. I, I include in the book the cover uh, from 2012 of Veja about the constitutional amendment that extended labor rights to domestic workers. And the cover presents the picture of a white middle-class man washing the dishes, right? And, and the title of the cover is You Tomorrow. So you, the Veja writer, right? It's you, the white middle-class man, right? The you of Veja does not include the more than 6 million domestic workers, right? The you of Veja does not include most Brazilians who are black, brown, and poor, right? So yeah, I think it's only a detailed qualitative textual analysis that can uncover the ideological nature of media tax in a way that can enable us to identify the mirrors of whiteness. Yeah, thank you for that. And I really um, like, like that picture and how you just described it and what it said. And so it was uh, very um, descriptive or, you know, tell, when we saw it in the, in the book as well. And you, you know, explain it for us as well. And so we can really see how that falls into your argument and really makes this point about the mirrors of whiteness in the mainstream Brazilian media. And so the last question I have is, so now that the book is out, um, do you have any new or continuing projects that you're advancing or, you know, what is on the horizon for you and for your, for your work? Yeah. Thank you for that question. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I have found this, that paid domestic worker is really important to understand Brazil. So, you know, my initial project for this book was to do interviews with middle-class families and domestic workers in Brasilia in 2020. I had everything set up. I got funding to go to the Brazil and of course the COVID pandemic hit. So I was not able to do that part of the research and had to rely instead on extensive textual analysis. But now that um, I'm back to being able to do field research in Brazil, I started a project last year uh, centered on the place of paid domestic work in structuring uh, Brazilian inequalities in terms of gender, race, and class. So I'm interviewing seven domestic workers over time. I interviewed them. I did a first round of interviews in July last year. 
in December, right after the elections. And I'm planning to go back to Brazil in July or August to do a third round of interviews. And those are more in-depth interviews to uncover the ways in which um, the, the plight of domestic workers is central to understand broader social, economic, political divisions in Brazil. And the stories, uh, I can't anticipate any spoilers, but you know what I'm hearing from these uh, domestic workers are incredible stories uh, of about the oppressive nature of a profession that's marked by this very fragile position, low remuneration, and even in the context of more legal rights, most of these rights have been not respected, right? So there, there have been some uh, actions by the public prosecutor's office in Brazil recently. Uh, I learned that this week the Ministerio Público went to some middle-class condominiums to check on the legal status of domestic workers, and they're finding that almost half of the domestic workers do not even have a contract, right? A carteira de trabalho, as they call in Brazil. So it's showing that it's widespread the practice of not respecting the labor laws in Brazil when it comes to domestic workers. So, yeah, so I plan to continue this project and um, uh, and I also have a project with another Brazilian scholar based in Italy, Valeria Corosax. We are going to work on an article that uh, you know explains this, this, that centrality of paid domestic work in Brazilian inequality. So I'm also very excited about that collaboration. So yes, my new work will focus on um, domestic workers in Brazil. Great, and that sounds really like very important work given what we've just talked about uh, with your book and representations of domestic work and the centrality of it in Brazil. We can see the importance of that project and um, I wish you well as you as you continue to pursue it. And so we'll have to also work out for it. Yeah. So I've been speaking with Mauro Porto, the author of Mirrors of Whiteness, Media, Middle-Class Resentment, and the Rise of the Far Right in Brazil, published by the University of Pittsburgh Press. Thank you so much, Mauro, for writing this book and for sharing it with us on the podcast. Thank you so much for the interview. It was I love the conversation, and I thank you so much for the invitation. And I hope we can continue talking about these issues in the future. Absolutely.